Are you all artificial? Take a look. There it is. But you're all iron. My plane crashed. Everyone else died. I crawled out. I'm not that easily killed. The spirits protect me. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rowling. Each episode of the Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. Just a note, whether the film is a classic or a more contemporary title, this will be an in-depth discussion that will include explicit plot details and potential spoilers. We are at episode 118, which is back to Cole's choice, and this is a pretty momentous point in our year-long journey. Tell us about what we're going to be talking about today. We are going to be talking about Hyenas from 1992, directed by Jibril Diop Mambeti and starring Ami Diakate, Mansour Diouf, and Mamadou Mahouredia Gaye. It is an adaptation of Friedrich Durenmont's play, The Visit, and it's about an aging wealthy woman who returns to her home village of Kolovan and promises to bestow great riches upon them all on one grim condition that they kill the man who abandoned her and their illegitimate child back when they were teenagers. Now, before we get into the film proper, I wanted to talk a little bit about our relative experience with African film. What sort of viewing background do you have? I think mine is more of a Westerner's view of Africa. So this would be Western filmmakers making stories there. I don't feel like I had a real sense of an indigenous cinema. I was in a similar position, so I am on a kind of odyssey with African film this year. Our Patreon listeners may remember that one of my resolutions for this year was to become better acquainted with African film, with a goal of viewing at least 50 films from the continent this year. That's a big deal. Yeah, and I've managed to keep a pretty good clip with it, so by the time the year is over, I will have exceeded that number by just a little bit, I think. Sadly for me... I only got to watch a handful of these with you. It was just a scheduling thing. Did you enjoy what you got to watch with me so far? I did. Well, I feel like I've covered a decent spectrum so far. I've seen films from Egypt, Ghana, Senegal, where this film is from, Burkina Faso, South Africa, Uganda, Morocco, Algeria, Mozambique, Mali, the Congo, Zambia, Botswana, Nigeria, Angola, the Comoros, Kenya, Guinea-Bissau, and Cameroon. That's a lot. And do you feel like you are still only kind of scratching the surface? Oh, definitely. I feel like I am barely dipping my toe into this. And one major thing that I feel has held me back that I have found is that accessibility makes it tough to see African films, especially some of the classics. In the beginning, I did a lot of research to assemble my list, and I tried to put some of the most pivotal entries on there, but a lot of them I've just had to give up on because it's terribly difficult to find these titles either on physical media or streaming. It gave me a good excuse to try to cover a wider variety of time periods and styles, though, but there are some I greatly regret not being able to find. How many from that initial list do you feel like you just were not able to get to? Out of the initial list of 50 that I made, there are at least two dozen that I have had distinct problems getting my hands on. That's too bad. But what I've been able to get to have been generally pretty fantastic. So then as you reflect back on this year, any big theme stand out for you? What have you learned about this experience with African cinema? Well, I don't know if you are guilty of this, if our listeners may be guilty of this. I know I was a little bit. There's an occasional tendency to look at African film as this monolithic thing. That's true. And we're talking about a number of countries that make up the continent. Yeah, and it doesn't do itself any favors in that regard sometimes. But you're right, we're talking about 54 countries here altogether with distinct regional differences. So to approach it all as similar would be akin to saying something like Texas filmmakers are the exact same as filmmakers from Connecticut or Oregon. There are some unifying themes, though, especially from that classic period colonialism and its effects has to be among the most prominent. 
you see that over and over again. And when you say classic period, what decades are we talking about usually? In this case, since it doesn't reach back as far as American filmmaking, for example, I would say late 50s until the 1980s. So generally that time period when a number of African countries became independent. Exactly. So it's on everyone's mind. The folktale tradition and how that translates to film would be another one. There is frequently this preoccupation with maintaining ancient traditions versus acquiescing to the encroaching modern world. And just in general, a somber tone feels like a defining characteristic. These are places that have seen colonization, starvation, genocide, and there is a need to confront those subjects, obviously. So it can make for fairly grim viewing a lot of the time. And when I think about what I've seen and read about the classic period here, there aren't a lot of knockabout comedies or frothy musicals, for instance, like we have in the 30s. It's a very serious cinema overall. There is some pushback against that, though. In the filmmaking community there, we have filmmakers like Wanuria Kahiu and the Afro bubblegum movement that she's at the forefront of. I was fascinated when you told me about this. Yeah, they want to have fun and demonstrate that it's not all like that. Mambetti himself was instrumental in making room for more experimental narrative techniques in African film. So basically what I found this year, just like anything, when you take the time to go below the surface of a thing, you'll find that it's multifaceted and there are always going to be people doing work that confounds your expectations. I think, for example, Nollywood as a movement <laughs> is something that I think they're doing the Lord's work there. I would definitely agree with that. Nollywood adds a whole different level of DIY craziness to what African film has to offer. So when you look at all of the selections over the course of this year, how did you come to choose specifically hyenas to represent that journey? One, simply, it's the best thing I saw. But two, more specifically, it's because it addresses all of these things that I learned and feel about African cinema now in the best ways. It takes on all those issues of these heady themes of colonialism, for example. The old ways versus the new. But it does it all in this iconoclastic way that Mambetti was known for that makes it so much more fascinating than just a straight reading of this type of thing, or for instance, some dry documentary that is important, but doesn't present it in this incredibly magical, poetic way. And knowing your tendencies, you'll be pleased to know that this both fits and doesn't fit with some of those general characteristics. It's a case where you can have your cake and eat it too. I think that's appropriate because Mambetti was called the most paradoxical filmmaker in the history of African cinema. Yeah, he's perfect for you. Just for example, the way the oral tradition fits into cinema, at least according to his viewpoint, it's crucial and paradoxical. It's an art of images, obviously, but he feels like the spoken is more important than the written because of the way the sound of a word is as important as the definition. And he says... The imagination creates the image. The image creates cinema. The push and pull between tradition and modernity is something that we see right away too in his imagery, with village life presented as this curious mix of modern, as represented by the pinball machine, and the less modern, with this monkey casually sleeping in the shop. This clash of old and new ways, it's not something that we have to think about on the same scale in the U.S., being such a relatively young country. We do not have traditions that you can think of as ancient, so it requires a moment of adjustment, I think, at least for me. Do you feel that way? I do, and I think his purpose is to make me think at every moment, to challenge me. What am I looking at? What do I feel about this? Okay, so having all that in our back pocket here, we get to the film. Our main character, the shopkeeper, Draman Drame, he's a cheerful guy. He seems to be a soft touch. He is apparently very beloved in the community for just this very reason, at least as long as he keeps giving credit and keeps the tab going for everybody. And his wife isn't too keen on this, but she wouldn't be chosen to be the next mayor like he is going to be. And he clearly seems to be everyone's friend, but at what cost? Maybe being too generous, for example. Yeah, he refers to himself later as a bankrupt grocer in a bankrupt town. 
And Mombetti is interested in marginalized people, and he started with Draman, but in ways that we won't really understand until the movie unfolds. I was most interested in that detail of watching the town hall basically get repossessed of its furniture. It's that bankrupt town. Yeah, it's not just he that is having trouble. It's not the villagers individually. It is the whole town. They are literally carting away the furniture from City Hall, basically. And even those repo men are not getting paid. And we see villagers in rice sacks, for example. The mayor, though, has the most sartorial elegance. <laughs> and that sartorial choice is on purpose because the mayor is not dressed like a mayor in the sense that we think of. So it starts to feel like there's a mask. Everyone's wearing a mask in some way. But I don't want to get too metaphorical yet. Well, they receive some big news right away. Lingare Ramatu, a prodigal daughter of Koloban, is returning to her home, bringing her untold riches with her. Now, this is literally wealth on a scale that none of the locals could probably even conceive of. A lot of them see this as being the solution to all their problems, including the mayor and other city officials who are obviously having trouble keeping the municipal government afloat. It's no coincidence that Mambete surrounds all of this action with shots of predators and carrion birds out on the fringes, just instinctively biding their time. And one animal that we'll see continually throughout the film is that titular hyena. The hyena is ever-present in African folklore, typically symbolizing immorality, dirty habits, reversal of normal activities, other negative traits. And for Mambetti, he makes the point that the hyena is falsehood, a caricature of man. They only come out at night. They're afraid of daylight. Yeah, viewing this the second time around, it was even better for me. And I see more of what Mambetti was saying about the richness of imagery that he's surrounded by. How the simple economics of filmmaking can be overridden by these natural resources. And he's exactly right, because cinema ultimately is images. As a result, regardless of the financials, Africa is rich in cinema because it is rich in those images. And there really is this certain piece of his artistic philosophy that I respond to with all of this. It applies to the clarity of his images. He is after perfection, and he defines that by how clearly something is said or presented, the exact opposite of the hyena. It's not an issue of an image being made up to be beautiful, but how well it communicates its intent. Now, even though he is so accomplished at this, were there still language or cultural barriers that you ran into? I found in general that I had to really pay close attention to try to follow intent, and I'm not sure that I always got it. And really, I think Mambetti is more of an opaque filmmaker. I would say, by and large, I think I gave this a pass. And let me explain why. It's well known that this production is all about non-professional actors. And Mambetti was very specific about that. He feels like professional actors break the magic of the dream and the magic of cinema. As a kid, he would talk about going to the movies and seeing an actor who had previously died in something else come back and that really bothering him. So not only did he use non-professional actors, he wouldn't work with the same actor again. So why is it that a film like this seems to work, at least it did for me, I'll ask you in a second if it did for you, when another film, like, say, your favorite Teenage Strangler, <laughs> to me, populated by non-professional actors, doesn't work at the level of acting? I would have a quibble that Teenage Strangler does not achieve its <laughs> aims, thank you very much. Okay. Now, for me, when I hear, typically, there are going to be non-professional actors, there's some trepidation that I feel. So here, am I giving the film kind of a pass? Because I think that you would agree that the acting performances could be a little stilted in some places. But does it seem to work overall because there's maybe a language barrier? So I'm not hearing the delivery of a line. I'm reading it instead. I want to clarify something because to me, these words that you're using mean two different things. Giving something a pass implies to me that it's bad. I think of this as giving more leeway. Is that more like what you mean? Thank you for clarifying. Yes, that better explains what I was talking about. 
I think you're right. There is definitely an impact of it not being a language that we are fluent in. But when I watch something like Hyenas, if anything, it demonstrates to me the effect of having a great director shape what these performers are doing and knowing how to best capture all of it. And I really love those things that you were saying about his philosophy with this too. That approach to this that says there are no such things as professional actors, basically. He is, I have to say, a much more dedicated purist about this than I am. That story you tell about him as a young person being angry that an actor shows up after having died in a previous film. He couldn't see past it. He is thoroughly devoted to maintaining this magic, whatever it took. And that working with an actor only once, I think, yields really interesting results too. He knew he was never going to work with a performer again and vice versa, so it became essential for them to give and get everything from one another this time. You work with Mambetti, you come prepared to leave everything on the screen. No dishonesty, nothing to break that spell. And I think as an audience member, you need to be equally committed. If you find yourself wanting a story neatly tied up, or easily understood, then you demonstrate an unwillingness to participate in the dream. I will say at the end of the day, I think this works best as a story. And I think the written word is what shines. And that's the adaptation by Mambete himself. Because there's so much humor and sarcasm and irony in this. And it would take the most accomplished Rada actor in the world to put that across. But reading it, it really comes alive. And then I can read that and still bathe in the landscape at the same time. Your reaction to it is really interesting to me in terms of what he is trying to achieve clarity-wise and the way it feels opaque to you. It feels very clear to me. And I know genuine universality in that sense is really hard to achieve but I feel like I understand it as well as I can, and any fault is neither Mambete's nor mine. It's just circumstance. He certainly doesn't fail in the storytelling, like you say. I think he reminds me a little bit of you and something that you <laughs> said when we first met, which was along the lines of, it's a little harder to get to know me. There are multiple points in this that I'm probably going to say <laughs> I relate to him a great deal. And even though he crafts everything that he does so carefully... I would say, above all things, I do think he's an iconoclast. We're not always meant at every level to follow his vision. Well, regardless of that, in these opening sequences, I feel like there is nothing that I misapprehend, and that's all down to the clarity of his communication. And I should add, it's not because of a simplistic approach. He doesn't sacrifice any mystery or poetry or subtlety when it's needed. He's just a great storyteller, even though he wouldn't want me to use that word, probably. And he said there's no excuse for mediocrity. In response to the news of her arrival, there's an impromptu council meeting that's held at the hyena hole to plan for Ramatu's return. And it turns out that Draman had a previous relationship with her, so he is enlisted as the town's ambassador for this process and also tapped to be the mayor's successor. I just hope it comes with a cool hat. <laughs> if the mayor is in charge, cool hats will abound. And her train arrives shortly after this. And it is really interesting to me to see these two lovers meeting again in front of the entire village. And I think it's a really apt metaphor that it takes that many people to unload her baggage. She's ordering everybody around and... First and foremost, she pulled the cord for the train to stop because it doesn't stop there anymore because she didn't want to take a bus and walk. A note here about the sound. This is when I really started to notice sound and music. The train noise interrupting the mayor. The train sound itself becoming drums. And the score here is by Mamete's brother, that's Wasis Diop, who is also the father of Maddie Diop, whom we talked about in 35 Shots of Rum. And by the way, it sounds like her film, The Atlantics, is something that we've got to see. Yeah, I can't wait. But in this case, I feel like you do, I think. The spectacle of her arrival makes me wish so much that I had been able to see this in the theater at the time. Did you think at all about that? I sure did, because the version that we saw is not great to look at. And then I'm starting to see images from the new restoration. 
And the images that I'm seeing from the new restoration are incredible. Just to be able to see, for example, her retinue in all their glory is a sight to behold. Yeah, I feel like we were responding to all the same things. It's not just for the photography that I would like to see this restoration. I was also really conscious of how the music especially took me back to that time period and how nice it would have been to experience this in its own time and at that specific point in my life. What a difference it would have made. I was wondering too as I was watching it because this is all about red dirt landscape, which to me suggests where you're from. Yeah. Oklahoma, the Oklahoma-Africa connection. It does. Does it sort of recall something in your distant memory? That's probably something that definitely spoke to me with a number of these films that I've watched throughout the year, because there is that similar aspect to the geography, the color of it, as far as the eye can see in some cases. Now we're coming up on what I feel like is the first truly meaty scene of this. I'm really taken with this first exchange between them when they are alone together for the first time in decades. Some of it feels like easily falling right back into that life, but then there are elements that hint that things can never be the same. These two people are too different. Life gave her the opportunity, quote-unquote, to get away, but you also have to be the type of person to take advantage of that opportunity when it's presented to you, not to let it pass by. He didn't. He has stayed in this village his entire life. So this character trait, being able to take advantage of what's put in front of you, do you feel like that's the biggest difference between Ramatu and Draman? Nature versus nurture, what life threw at them versus who they are. I think there's a key difference inside of them, but I think that that key difference was discovered by Ramatu within circumstances. And I think it's really mirrored in an interesting way in one of the scenes during this period, back at that community space, the regulars, the kind of down and out community people, step back so that the quote unquote important people in town, the mayor and officials can have seats. And there's definitely a conflict here. She accuses him of choosing money over her. And he says something that reminds me quite a lot of our previous episode on the heiress. I did it for you. If you'd stayed here, you'd be poor. Yes, her memory of their shared past to me seems crystal clear. And his spinning of it clearly comes across as disingenuous and pandering. She completely has the upper hand in this case. And when I watch the two of them here, I can see what brought them together. And it's the same thing that Mambetti loves in all of his characters. The thing you already mentioned. They are on the fringe. And I mean that in a very specific way in this case. These are characters that you might not even recognize as being outsiders at first glance. They may be popular and beloved in the village the way Draman is, a central figure in everyone's daily life. Or they may be notorious or prominent the way that Ramatu is, someone that everyone is aware of. But the key for them, and Mambeti, and me in this case, is that they are all innately outside. There is something in them, imperceptible to most people, that keeps them apart from everyone else. The way they operate in their secret hearts, the way they look at the world, it's just not in line with the way that more conformist, less complicated characters see it. I think it ended up being a wonderful coincidence that both Ramatu and Catherine from the Eris have long memories, and Morris and Draman tell themselves a different story. They are holding a big event for Ramatu's return, and this is now underway. And with the mayor's outfit and everything else, it feels a little like the Senegalese version of the big show at the end of True Stories. Complete with everyone clapping except Draman's wife. Yeah. Except this event is specifically intended to flatter Ramatu to the point that she will see fit to give them her money. But she's canny, obviously. She's been around the block more than once. And she's a lover of the truth. Exactly. So she cuts right through their bullshit. And she makes them an outrageously generous offer, but it comes with a sting in its tail. She must be allowed to buy the court. And so these youthful indiscretions and manipulations, they're starting to come back to haunt Draman a little bit here. And as she lays out her plan... There's one detail prior to her making this bounty that is particularly chilling. 
she brings out these two false witnesses that Dramond produced years ago in their paternity case. She has hunted them down and transformed them into her eunuchs. And it's played a little broadly, so the comedy masks some of the darkness of the situation. But if anyone doubted the lengths that she is willing to go to, they should realize this is no idle threat. Because she tracked them down, kept them prisoner, sold them, then castrated them. And this is all because of this wrong done to her, to her name, to her reputation, to her life. Dramon claimed that she slept with these two men so that he would not have to recognize the child that they had together. And it resulted in her being cast out of society. I love the way they present her here. She is so imperious. She's perched high above this whole scene, looking half like a queen, half like a witch. She is very imposing. And she wants, in essence, to re-legislate the past. Dramon's argument to all this, it's not important anymore. But is that something that he gets to decide? With the dead child and everything that came after for her, I don't think so. So obviously she did not receive justice, but what is legitimate to ask of Dramon? What punishment should he face these decades later, if any? I really don't know the answer to this. Clearing her name and reputation are one thing, but a pound of flesh, I'm not sure. And this is really interesting within the light of what happens in Africa in decades past and now with commissions on the truth. I also like this touch that she comes down to their level to make this offer. And this offer is actually a bounty. I will make all your dreams come true with everything that money can buy. You only have to kill Draman. Initially, the community rallies around him and refuses her offer and... My favorite line in the movie, her response to their refusal, I'll wait. We should say this is all presented in a way that conveys the gravity of the situation as well as being extremely funny, I think. It's very deftly handled. And it is absurd. That is so much money. It's a life-changing amount of money for the whole village, literally for generations to come, not just right now. And one really provocative thing that I think Mambeti does here his aim was to make her analogous to the IMF and the World Bank. One character even says she is as rich as the World Bank. The bottom line being that money is truly the root of all evil, all problems. Yeah, and knowing how Mambeti feels about the pernicious influence of the World Bank in Africa, to me, this would clearly indicate that he is casting her as the ultimate villain. That his pound of flesh, Jermaine's pound of flesh, his life, is not the ideal reparation for what was done to her. Yeah, he wants you to think of her and those entities as one and the same, yet her situation is not entirely unsympathetic. How do you feel about how he threads that needle? I think provocative is the right word. Again, making me think and making me question, because let's say that it was a hundred Ramatus. Let's say that it was an entire village. Let's say that it was an entire nation. Is money bad then? But I think he's also saying, is anyone in place who will actively use this money in the correct way? Well, we get our answer to that pretty quickly because there is menace in even the simplest transaction now. Even if Draman is not in direct danger from his fellow villagers, the implication in everyone's action is that they should cash in now for he might not be around later. And so they develop these more exotic tastes overnight. Even his friends have accepted gifts from her. She is buying everyone's loyalty. How soon before this becomes palpably dangerous? Is it already? I do. I think it was dangerous the moment that she said the words. And the villagers, at least for the moment, seem to be on his side. But that's quickly ebbing away. Not just the buying on credit. Not just the turning away. But the continuing of putting on masks and other outfits to hide that individual responsibility. Well, the constabulary isn't taking it seriously. She's bought everyone. Draman even visits the mayor, and in one of the funniest scenes in the entire film, it is very clear that he's the most corrupt of all. There are hyenas everywhere. We start to become really aware that there are major class divisions, even in such a small place. 
something we saw a glimpse of in the scene you mentioned earlier when the mayor takes his entourage to the bar. And this is one of the things I glean from watching a number of these African films. It is a very common social critique that African elites are not above enacting the same colonial mindset when it benefits them, and then there is all the stratification and corruption that goes along with it. Is this just the human condition, though, not specific to Africa or anywhere else, that this is how the 1% are going to behave if left unchecked? Because no one is rushing to his defense now. Even the best that the cleric, the holy man, can offer is to tell him to be on the last train out of town tonight. I think the answer to that earlier question is with the carnival that she's brought. This gaudy representation of how we're killing ourselves. All of these objects, all of this materialism, down to American soda that you see everywhere. Shiny things given to us by rich people to keep us quiet. Yeah, there's this parade of air conditioners, refrigerators, fireworks. There's a state fair vibe to all of it. She has harbored this desire for revenge for decades And one of the saddest things about the whole affair is that she is literally willing to irreversibly erase the culture with this landslide of Western creature comforts to achieve her revenge. And then I think we get the most overt hyena folklore and imagery coming up when Dramon tries to leave. He's got his suitcase ready. There's the last train. And some villagers, his friends, have gathered to tell him to get on the train but actively stop him in the way that Mambete says hyenas don't kill. It's at this point that, if you haven't thought it before, you are obviously thinking his fate is sealed. Did you ever doubt it at all, though? I didn't. It didn't seem like some figure was going to present itself as his savior at any point, or that she was going to back down. Appeals are made, but not in a prostrated begging way. The doctor and the teacher go to visit Rama too, for instance, and that falls upon deaf ears. Like you say, she says, life made me a whore. I will make the world a brothel. She has no problems employing this scorched earth policy to get what she wants. She is absolutely determined. And then the professor, the teacher appeals to the village, but you know how that goes. Nothing can be said to compete with this promise of wealth and security. The huge question, obviously, What is one man's life versus the greater good? And the question I asked earlier was, what if this was a hundred Ramatus, which it often is, and what if this was a hundred Dramans being perpetrators? And it often is. So I'm definitely not comfortable saying take his life, and I'm not comfortable with her revenge at all costs policy either. Yeah, it's such a short-sighted question. Ultimately, it feels like. At this point, Draman, he is the one strong man left, and he's resigned finally to his fate, and he accepts responsibility for the things that he's done. To do anything else would be cowardly and foolish, or at least that's how I read it. And as long as we're doing this extrapolation of things, or kind of flipping the circumstances, what do you think Draman would have done if it were someone else in the hot seat? I don't think that he would have the wherewithal to stand up because he certainly didn't do that decades ago when a woman that he professed to love and his own baby were on the line. I still think he makes that good point when he tries to appeal to her idea of principles. Why don't you instead buy up the factories and the buildings and we can go to work? But that's not workable for her. And it seems like also too little, too late, sort of a Mr. Fix-It idea that sounds great, but I don't know how workable it is. I think you assess their character perfectly on both counts. In the past, he obviously did show a willingness to lie or cheat to achieve the thing that benefits him and her refusal to invest in the community without his murder. It exposes that none of this is altruism. Because the mayor's plan is all about a grander town hall, not a community space and schools and other factories and other places to make jobs. Well, at any rate, a tribunal is scheduled to debate this case and they leave him a loaded gun to do the quote unquote honorable thing. But he is fearless now. He is challenging them to accept the responsibility for however they decide his fate. 
The reign of the hyenas has begun. And Dramon goes to Ramatu for one last confrontation between the two of them. And he does not plead for anything. And interestingly, she says she will have him brought to her island after this, where she can keep him forever. He has finally asked her about the name of their child that died. And so when she talks about keeping his body, do you feel like that's a preservation of a love that may have existed? Or she's just planning on pissing on his grave every single day? It's strictly about ownership. There is no love left here. And I think what gives this away is one little thing. When they're sitting there next to the ocean, she refers to it not as the sea, but my sea. And when Mambetti talks about narrative structure in general, he uses this really beautiful metaphor. When a story ends, it falls into the ocean. And that underscores something very important for me, to not think of storytelling in the tradition of the end, period. Using Mambetti's metaphor, this story is not over. It can now create dreams. The method by which it is disseminated changes. It's like all energy. It doesn't go away. It just changes form. And it's a nice touch that that's where this exchange literally takes place, with her surveying the ocean as part of everything that she considers her domain. One little touch that I really love here, one concession that's given to Draman, he indulges in the simple pleasure of driving one last time on his way to face his murderers head on. But it's not entirely pleasurable as a viewer because this obviously plays as one final request. My cigarette, my blindfold, I get to drive the car that I haven't driven in decades. And I think it's telling that there's no place to go but to the sea. Right. And she says she wants truth and justice with this. But how ultimately does revenge figure into that? I guess if you don't have anything else, and I don't think she does, there's revenge. Will she come to see it as hollow once it's all over, do you feel like? She already is hollow. <laughs> That's true. Good point. So I think that she's there. I think she's done. Well, he meets with this tribunal. And they begin to move slowly in on him as the teacher speaks. And what I'm gleaning at first here is obviously they are all clearly hypocritical about this money and what it means to them. This is a show trial where they are going to say the righteous things and do this evil deed. They protest too much. And they have clothed themselves in wigs and other garments. Their hair is done in buffalo shapes. And for Mambetti, that is the laughing stock of the savannah. Because they laughably say we're doing this not for money, but for conscience. Right here, Draman has what I consider to be one of the most indelible, greatest final lines in all of cinema that I've ever seen. Pray for Coloban and let me be. And then they close in on him once and for all. He is gone. Only his clothes remain. And I love this choice and the way it works against the other villagers' costume that you mentioned. They employ those costumes to distance themselves from their despicable actions. We are doing this as a uniform collective, thereby absolving me of any individual personal responsibility. And all that remains of him on screen underscores his individuality at that point. Now, their greed and their bloodlust momentarily sated, they scattered to the four winds like the hyenas they are. And my first question was, are they slinking away? Do you think there is any shame in their exit? But then Mambete himself answered that. They are ravenous like hyenas. Their wigs indicate that they are buffaloes. Animals do not feel shame. That's for humans. Ironically, their greed, the one human attribute on display, has resulted in this devolved state. And if you want to know where Dramon's body has gone... As the director says, only magic knows. And then the bulldozers move in, and it is with great sadness that we realize there's no turning back. Everything that was once beautiful about Coloban, even though it's impoverished, has been lost forever, plowed under, buried. And so the director is from Coloban. And I found it so moving, something that he said later in life, I have always found it sad to be away from home. That's the thing I've been thinking about a lot lately. Some of my favorite directors have just coincidentally been bringing this theme to mind. Mambetti, Chantal Ackerman's News from Home. I've been thinking about this idea quite a bit. And I'm really fascinated with Mambetti's approach to 
African cinema specifically itself, this feeling of being tied to that. I think there's a bit of what he says that is disingenuous, that he's not interested in telling stories, but simply creating pleasure. I don't buy that entirely. I think his choice of source material reveals that he is certainly interested in receiving stories and then relying on that as a framework for this film says that he's more about storytelling than he lets on. I think it's fascinating that he did not go the route of other aspiring African filmmakers at the time when he was first starting in the 60s. He didn't go to the Moscow Film School. He also didn't go to France. So he feels very much grounded in Africa. And even though I say I take some of that with a grain of salt, I also believe him when he says he's not a contrarian, because that would require setting up a specifically opposite position and I truly believe he just doesn't take others into account that way. He simply does what he wants. He's not thinking about how it might be perceived or what this is in reaction to. He is just making it by instinct. It all comes straight from his gut. I was also really struck when he talked about this intended trilogy, Tukibuki being the first installment, this being the second, and he died before he could complete the third. And he said he didn't want to essentially, revert to pessimism, which seems tough when he's so focused on the marginalized. And the way he's inextricably linked with African cinema, it's doubly fascinating to think that someone who is so integral to this may not practically know that much about it as a whole. He professed to rarely see any films, African or otherwise. And another thing I love that he did, his advice to young filmmakers was to Think diligently about what you want to make, not to see other movies. And Hyenas really came from Tuki Boogie, that inspiration, from 20 years before. He thought about the girl in the film, and he wanted to find her again, looking for that character. And I still haven't seen Tuki Boogie. Some of the animal stuff is going to be hard for you to look at, but it is definitely essential viewing. I like Hyenas slightly better. But that's not because of any inherent flaw in Tuki Buki. I love that film as well. And it's got so much in it to think about too. It borrows from the French New Wave. But I want to make sure and reiterate that everyone did. Mambete shouldn't be singled out in that regard as if it's some sort of weakness. He used those techniques though in a way that was absolutely unique to him and the way they applied to this Senegalese story. It's so interesting and complicated though because... The shadow that neo-colonialism casts over the whole thing, some of the most prominent African films of the era couldn't get made without French financial backing. And with Tuki Buki, we even have the question of the intellectual debt owed to the French, with so much of this being so obviously influenced by Godard et al. Again, just one more of those things that until I started digging into the layers beneath the surface that I would have never thought about that much, I guess. African cinema is so rich. I'm so glad that I've taken this on this year. And both Tukibuki and Hyenas continue to influence filmmakers. And I was thinking about I Am Not a Witch, which I haven't seen. I know you watched. Yeah, it was on my list of 50 plus this year. It's a great movie. And very contemporary. And still grappling with the legacy of all of these things that you see in the classic period. And going back to that money angle, identifying the enemy of human mankind, as he said, the reason why this film goes back to Coliban, his home, is that he felt like we've traded our souls for money. And this is why childhood is my last refuge. And unfortunately, as we mentioned, he died. He's not still around to continue this trilogy, his other short film trilogy, the other works that he may have had in his imagination. So where do we go now? And he was very specific on that topic. He said, I believe that Africans in particular must reinvent cinema. Mambeti occupies such an interesting place for me, artistically and politically. He's that middle ground, I feel like, between traditional neo-realists and then the absolute radicals of the time. His poetic ability, it makes me believe that he had the most potential in terms of that reinvention. The social realists were never going to be provocative enough and the radicals would never be able to relent with their aggressive, rigid polemics long enough to give free reign to their imagination. It's such a shame that we never got to see more 
of what he would have made. And it's so baffling to think about what a mistake that they made when they wrote him off as undisciplined earlier in his performing career. It worked out for film lovers, though. If not for that, he might have never been spurred on to do all the things that came later. And everything I see of his or read about him makes me just want more. More of his work, more of his iconoclastic rabble-rousing, more of his fight. He was such a thorny, very specifically principled person. I really do relate to him quite a bit. He had such a love for the disenfranchised, those characters on the fringes. Can you imagine? I know you haven't seen the first installment, but the final installment of this trilogy that goes from Tukibuki to Hyenas, what would have come next? It boggles the mind to consider how he would conclude that incisive a look at the associated ways that madness manifests itself in relation to power. I can only tell you what the title and vaguest theme was going to be. It was going to be Malaika, and that was going to be about the power of craziness. And then he also said, after that, I will consult God about the state of the world. Oh, it's such a great loss to world cinema to not have more of his work, and especially for me to not have the finale of this trilogy. You referred to this just briefly a moment ago, but I think the thing that resonates with me the most of all the things that he said, we have sold our souls too cheaply, he said once. And it hurts so much to look at how that applies to African consumer culture since the 1960s, but it also applies so often just as universally to all of us. He is simply not wrong. So then... How about your recommendation? I know you also really liked The Little Girl Who Sold the Sun. Oh, that was fantastic. That was a work of his that was finished posthumously that is kind of a turn back towards the more optimistic. And it too was part of the 50 films plus that I watched this year. But for my recommendation, I'm going to the very first one on my list. And that's Cairo Station from 1958. And that's directed by Yusuf Shaheen and starring Shaheen himself. Farid Shaki and Hind Rostam. It's about a disabled newspaper vendor, coincidentally tied to the little girl who sold the sun, in Cairo's central train station that falls in love with a girl who sells drinks to travelers, and it follows his fixation with her as it grows from innocent crush to homicidal obsession. I choose it first because it's an incredible movie, period, but also because it helps demonstrate the width and breadth of African film. This comes from Egypt 1958, which could not be more different from Senegal 1992. There are not those hallmarks that we might think of as traditional or even stereotypical with regard to African film. This is the type of thriller that could have come from any world capital of filmmaking during that time that shows the influence of Hollywood or the UK just with an Egyptian stamp on it. The most remarkable thing about it that I think everyone should watch it for is this vibrant world of the station itself and the way Shaheen navigates all these groups that populate it and the ways they are pushing back against repression, large and small, until we come to that nail-biting finale, which could have been taken straight out of a Hitchcock film. It is very exciting and it belongs on any list of must-watch international classics. What about you? I was inspired by a sentiment expressed in a review of Hyenas. Anyone can be bought if the price is right. But I'm going to alter it a little bit for this film, my recommendation. And that's anyone can be sold if the price is right. And I chose The Claim from 2000, directed by Michael Winterbottom with Peter Mullen, Wes Bentley, Sarah Polly, Nastasia Kinski, and Mila Jovovich. It's loosely based on The Mayor of Casterbridge by Thomas Hardy. And so that may tell you everything you need to know. The backstory takes place in the gold rush of 1849, and our main character, Dylan, sells his wife and baby daughter to a prospector in exchange for a small gold claim. This gold claim later flourishes and makes him extremely wealthy. And then one day, years later, his wife and daughter come back. I think this was my first Peter Mullen film. And I think he's incredibly well cast here. Anytime he can play a character who seems like his black soul is eating him from the inside is a great opportunity. I haven't seen it since I first saw it back in 2000. Have you seen it? 
I have never seen it, but anything Sarah Polly is in, I will watch. Absolutely. It was one of her very first films that I got to see. I think it ultimately suffered critically because of its slowness, which I think of as a virtue. Well, then I will have to put it on my list. So once again, that's two great recommendations, Cairo Station and The Claim. And that brings us to the end of episode 118. First and foremost here at the end, we would like to say a big thank you to our most recent Patreon supporter, Josh Hornbeck. We appreciate that very much. If what we do here is valuable to you and you would also like to support that, we would certainly love for you to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash magiclantern. The $5 a month level gets you access to a big backlog of bonus episodes and those come out on the Mondays alternating with regular episodes so you never have to go a week without new Magic Lantern in your life. If you would just like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast on any of those platforms. Our podcast network, The 25th Frame, it's home to a lot of great shows, so please stop by 25thframemedia.com to check out all of our cinema-loving friends and what they're up to. We just wanted to do one more push here in the month of November to highlight one of our favorites, The Complete Podcast. It's hosted by our friends Matt Gasteyer and Travis Trudell, and each season makes its way through the complete filmography of the world's most renowned filmmakers. We have just started seeing the word circulate that Elaine May, whom they covered in their second season, is about to start work on a new film finally. So this would be a great time to get caught up on her catalog with Matt and Travis in preparation for that. It really is one of our favorite shows about some of our favorite filmmakers. We are on Twitter at Lantern underscore cast. And I just wanted to take a second to say thanks to everyone who has shared the show or given us feedback since last time. Tim Lego. The Fine Gentleman of Fuds on Film, Matteo Boscarol, Jeff Duncanson, Ross McLeod, The Criterion Channel Surfing Podcast, Grindhouse Dave, Danny Asuncion, and The Pod Police. If you're sharing the show or talking about us, please make sure to tag us so we can say thanks. We are on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, The 25th Frame, just about anywhere that you get your podcast you can find us. If you'd like to leave us a rating or review via any of those services, we would certainly appreciate that. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material at the website, magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. Fifth Frame, a listener-supported network celebrating film and culture worldwide.